We're going to do something a little bit different this morning. Most of the time, uh, if, you, if you come to shore during the year and uh, you listen to the message and so on, most of the time we are preaching or teaching from the Bible, taking a passage of Scripture and, 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 and we unpack it and we talk about it and we talk about what it meant then and what it means now. This morning, what I want to do is, is not so much teach from the Bible, I want to teach about the Bible uh, in the hope that this sort of sets us up for the year because my heart as a teacher and as a pastor is not to be a spoon feeder of information but to encourage you all to be self-feeders on the Scriptures and to for us to be the kind of church where we're each going away and, and searching the Scriptures for ourselves and able to handle this book and, and grasp it and know it and, and test the things that you hear on Sundays and, and do your own study, not to be dependent on just absorbing passively something that comes at you from the front once a week. So what I want to do this morning is just talk a little bit more big picture about this book, the Bible, because what I have found is that people have all kinds of different paradigms for the way they approach the Scriptures. There are different ways for understanding what this book is. It's not just a case of knowing how to study the Bible. We're going to talk about that a bit more in a couple of weeks' time. But, but the bigger question, I think, is what is this book? And what paradigm do you use to approach the Scriptures and to understand the Bible? I think there's, there's several ways that people come at this. Uh, one prevalent understanding is that people see the Bible basically as a list of rules, a list of commands, like the whole Bible is just like the Ten Commandments. And it's understandable that if you take that perspective, it's not a very fun thing to study and read and apply to your life because it's just like a bullet-pointed list of do's and don'ts. Uh, another paradigm that you sometimes hear is that uh, the Bible is God's love letter to you. Have you heard that one? That's pretty soppy. Us guys don't get into that that much. But, you know, some people... that, that And that becomes then a paradigm for thinking about how you're going to use the Bible. You see, what you think this book is determines how... You're going to use it and what you're going to do with it. For some people, the Bible is a list of principles that we can pull out at random and everything gets reduced to it to a particular principle or a particular truth in the Bible. For others, it's uh, a list of promises that we can claim. And all of those things are there in the Scriptures. But I want to suggest that none of them are really the best way of understanding what this book is. And the approach that I have uh, come to, to adopt and really promote is to understand and see the Bible as a story, as a narrative. That doesn't mean, last time I talked like this, somebody came up to me and said, they felt like when you talk about the Bible as a story, it makes it sound like it's a myth, like it's a fairy tale. That's not what we mean by talking about the Bible as a story. What we mean is to approach the Bible as a narrative to understand that this book is a witness to what God has done, is doing, and will do in history. It is God's story. And the story is about God. He is the main actor. This is critical to understand, that God is the one who is the protagonist of the story, not you and me. We tend to want to put ourselves as the main characters and the main actors in the story, but we need to constantly remind ourselves that the main character of this book is actually God. So when you're studying a book like Joshua or Mark or Hebrews, we need to remember the book is not about me. It's about God. It has something to say to me. It has a profound application to my life. But it is primarily God's story. And when you begin to understand the Bible as a story, I think it opens up a richness 
that's often not there if we just hollow out the Bible to a list of commands. So it's a, it's a true story, a real story of God's work on this planet from creation, with glimpses even earlier than creation, right through to the new creation, what we call the new creation, the new heavens, the new earth, and beyond. So from eternity past, really, to eternity future, and it's a story that's ongoing. This, I think, is what makes it so exciting, is that the Bible is an unfinished story. Sometimes we think that the the story of the Bible finished in the first century AD when the Bible was finished being written. But in fact, the story of the Bible continues, and we are drawn into it. So what I want to do today, in 25 minutes, is tell you the story. We're going to try and do the whole Bible in 25 minutes. It's never been done before. We've got the guy from the Guinness Book of Records at the back (laughs) with a stopwatch. And uh, I I want to just tell you the story because I think this is foundational. There's different ways of telling the story. And this is part of Christian imagination. Is to, it, It's like getting to the summit of a mountain through different roads. That's part of the fun. But I want to tell the story of the scriptures this morning using the illustration of a six-act play, like a Shakespearean play. Um, and I want you to think about the Bible as being in six different acts. I think if we can get our heads around this, when you are buried in a particular part of the Bible, it will start to make more sense if you can think about the big picture as this massive drama that's going on, a play that is being performed throughout history. And you can tie individual passages and books and sentences and verses to these six acts to try and situate yourself where you are. So the first act, and by the way, the names of some of these acts are not original with me. I'm borrowing some of these from a guy named Brian McLaren. The first act is creation. So God creates the cosmos, and he creates humanity, and he places humanity in the very center of his creation. And he creates men and women in the image of God, which means three things. It means that as the Bible opens, Genesis 1 and 2, it's the shortest, this is the shortest of the six acts, by the way. It only covers two chapters of the Bible creation. Genesis 1 and 2. It means that as God creates humanity and places us in the center of his creation, he puts us in relationship with himself. He puts us in relationship with each other, Adam and Eve together, man and wife. And he places us in a relationship with his world, his earth. So that humanity is in this matrix of relationships, all of which are working perfectly, all of which are uh, working in harmony together. This is creation. See, we've already done two chapters of the Bible. We're in good stead. Second act. We can call this act crisis. And this is Genesis 3 through to 11. What happens in Genesis 3 is that humanity, Adam and Eve, disobey God by breaking one of his commandments. And in a sense, what they're doing is elevating themselves above God. Humanity, at this point in time, decide, as each of us do in our own lives every day, that we would rather live our way than God's way. We would rather live a self-determined life than a God-determined life. And at that crisis point, when sin enters the human experience, it disrupts all three of those relationships. It's helpful to think about those three relationships right through the scriptures. Relationship with God, relationship with one another, relationship with the world. Each of them were created perfect. Each of them are disrupted and fractured by sin. Not just your relationship with God, not just our individual relationships with God, although that was severed, but also our relationships with one another. And this is the story that you see through Genesis 3 right through to 11, the way that sin affects family, 
the way that sin affects relationships between friends, the way that sin ripples out to destroy societies and cultures and so on and so on and so on. The story of the first 11 chapters of Genesis is really the story of sin wreaking havoc on humanity in in the broadest possible sense. So by the time you get to Genesis 11, there is this great act of judgment that God does through the Tower of Babel, destroying this tower that humanity arrogantly built to try and be themselves gods. He scatters them as a judgment upon just how arrogant humans have become. This is the power of sin. And thirdly, sin contaminates that relationship between humanity and creation. Sin has a cosmic effect to it. It doesn't just destroy your personal relationship with God, but when humanity sins, all of creation is thrown out of kilter. This is important to realize when we come to the New Testament, to make sense of passages like Romans 8, where Paul talks about creation groaning for its own liberation from its bondage to decay. That's because creation itself is under a curse, not just humanity. The entire cosmos is thrown out of kilter. It's not the way it should be. So this crisis lasts until Genesis 11. And then in Genesis 12, you have the beginning of the third and the longest act in the entire Bible. And we can call this calling. It's the calling of a people, a people who became Israel. But it just started with the calling of one man, Abraham, this wandering nomad, whom God appeared to in Genesis 12 and said, I've chosen you, I'm going to enter into a unique relationship with you, and your descendants will become this people of great blessing. They're going to be as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They're going to be as numerous as the stars in the sky. Through you, Abraham, all nations will be blessed. This covenant that God makes with Abraham in Genesis 12 is absolutely programmatic for the rest of the entire Bible. In fact, the rest of the Bible can be seen as a fulfillment of that promise. It's sometimes what we call the Abrahamic covenant. The promise to Abraham is fulfilled partly and partly and partly through the Bible, but not finally until Jesus returns. And so God makes these incredible promises to Abraham, and the promises drift down through Abraham's offspring, through Isaac, and then through Jacob, who becomes the father of the 12 tribes of Israel, and eventually Abraham's descendants become a nation, the nation of Israel. They start off as a slave people in Egypt under Pharaoh and then Moses is raised up and he leads them out and through uh, the wilderness and eventually into the land of Canaan. This is where the book of Joshua comes in. Those of you that have been through that journey with us this year, you remember Joshua, the book that describes the Israelites settling in their own land, the land called Canaan on the east of the Mediterranean by driving out the nations before them. And God along the way at Mount Sinai has entered into a unique relationship with Israel, just as he's entered into a unique relationship with Israel's great ancestor, Abraham. And God says, Israel, if you continue to obey and you continue to follow me and you continue to serve me and you continue to live by the word that I've given you, the Torah, you'll be blessed and you'll be able to stay in this land. But if you disobey and you run off after these other gods and these other nations, you'll be expelled from the land. The land really becomes like a fulcrum in the relationship between God and Israel. And sure enough, the, the, the story of the Old Testament is really a pretty sorry story of woe. As Israel, no sooner have they gone into the land than they begin to disobey. And they start wandering away, and they do pretty much exactly what Adam and Eve did back in Genesis 3. 
They elevate themselves, they push God down, and they say, we would rather do things our way, thanks very much. And so they drift further and further from God. And God sends these guys called prophets along to try and dissuade Israel from their idolatry and their rebellion. Prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Amos, Micah. You can read these guys in the final chapters of the Bible, really from about halfway through the Old Testament, final chapters of the Old Testament, rather. These were men of God whom, through whom God spoke to try and call Israel back to covenant loyalty, covenant faithfulness. And when you think about the prophets, don't think of predicting the future. That was really just a small part of what they did. What they were primarily doing was declaring God's truth to a nation, God's truth that had already been revealed, God's truth that repentance was required. And if it didn't happen, if it didn't come, then judgment would follow. And the story of the Old Testament is the story of Israel declining and declining and declining in their faith and their love for God, to the point that eventually God hands Israel, which has now become two nations, split in two, Israel and Judah, hands these two nations over to be conquered and to be dragged away into exile. And this is the period that's really the darkest in Israel's history. We're still in Act 3, calling. But Israel's dragged away to Babylon, where they spend 70 years. It's a loss of their national identity. It's a loss of their hope. It's a loss, in their eyes, of the very presence of God, which was tied to the land and tied to the temple. But even though Israel is exiled, and even before they went into exile, God, through prophets like Jeremiah and Isaiah, speaks of hope beyond exile. And speaks of the fact that even though they are going to be judged, and they are going to be punished, there will be restoration. God's justice is always restorative. And sure enough, after 70 years, the political winds change, and the Persian Empire swings into power and allows the Israelites to go back to Canaan. And that final scene in the Old Testament of Israel returning to its land is really a huge anticlimax. By the time you get to the last of the minor prophets, Malachi, Zechariah, Haggai, there's a real sense of things hadn't worked out the way we'd hoped. We've come back to the land, we've physically returned, but the temple is not what it used to be. Even though it's been rebuilt, God's never inhabited it again. Israel never had a king again. And even though they were physically back in their land, they were still ruled by foreign nations. They were still an occupied country. They never really, except for a couple of brief moments, regained the freedom that they once had. And yet Israel had been promised by God that you're going to be the light to the world. You're going to be the nation to which all other nations flock to come and hear from God. They'll come to the temple and worship him with you and Israel will be this great political superpower. That's the, that's the vision they had in their heads, but it didn't seem to have been realized even after they got back from exile. And so as the Old Testament closes, what you're left with is the sense that the real return from exile is still to come. This is important for understanding the context in which Jesus entered. That in Israel's mind, they'd had a physical exile and a physical return from exile. They were back in their land physically. But they started to understand that there was another type of return from exile that needed to happen. That in a sense, they were still an exiled people. They were still lost they were still dislocated. They still lacked identity. The promises in the Bible didn't seem to have been 
fulfilled. And, and, and they awaited God's intervention on a dramatic scale to really bring about this great return, this great renewal, which they understood to be the kingdom of God. The day that Yahweh would return as a divine warrior and establish his kingdom based in Jerusalem from which he would rule over the whole earth. It was a very physical kingdom. It was a very political kingdom. And they believed that the ruler of this kingdom on earth, God's man on the spot, would be this Messiah, this Christ. And the government would be on his shoulders, as Isaiah put it. So this is the, this is the, the anticipation that's in the air. At the beginning of the first century AD, when Jesus of Nazareth appears. And he stands up and he begins talking about this thing called the kingdom of God, which would have had a lot of currency in the Jewish mind because they knew exactly what the kingdom of God was. This is God going to come back and crush these Romans. He's going to come back and scatter our enemies. He's going to come back and finally establish us as the military superpower he's told us we're going to be. But yet Jesus' description of the kingdom of God never quite fitted that. By the way, we've crossed over into the fourth act, Christ. We've had creation, crisis, calling, the biggest act in the Bible, from Genesis 12 through to the end of Malachi. And now in the New Testament we have act four, Christ. This is the act that really centers around Jesus. And he comes teaching about this thing called the kingdom of God, but it's a very subversive kingdom that doesn't look a lot like what most people expected it. This is a kingdom that's characterized by love. It's a kingdom that's characterized by service and humility. It's a kingdom that doesn't exist in political power and military might, but in laying down one's life for one's neighbor. And it's a kingdom that revolves around Jesus. And he starts relating himself to God in such a way that it seems like he's saying there's a closer connection here than just him being a prophet or him being God's spokesman. But he talks about I and the Father are one. And if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. This would have been blasphemy unless he actually meant what he said and Jesus himself was fully identified with God. So Jesus comes to fulfill in the first instance Israel's story. This is important because we want to look at Jesus and we want to read the Gospels and we want to say that it's about us. And we look there and we try and derive these truths for our own lives, but we need to start by acknowledging that Jesus came in the first instance to bring to a close and a climax Israel's story. He was the return from exile that Israel had hoped for. He was the fulfillment of everything that had come before in Jewish history. All the law, all the teaching, all the prophets, all the ordinances, all the great characters. We went through this in the book of Hebrews. Every institution... In the Jewish faith, Jesus brings to fulfillment. He's the new temple. He's the new Moses. He's the new Joshua. He's the new sacrifice that's come. He's even the land. And we looked at this in the series we did in Joshua, that somehow Jesus himself fulfills the promise of land. That God ultimately didn't intend Israel and his people to simply inhabit a little strip of land on the Mediterranean, but Jesus is the land. He is the place of rest, not in a physical sense, but in a much deeper and richer sense of bringing true rest and true redemption. So Jesus fulfills Israel's story and he starts talking about the kingdom of God in such a way that it sounds like this thing is opening up beyond just the nation of Israel and is going to be something that centers around him and is available now not just to Jews, 
but also to those outside the traditional family of God, even to those Gentiles, even to those filthy Romans who were occupying the country at the time. Even them, even they, are being allowed into the kingdom of God. This is evidenced by the people that Jesus interacts with, not just Jews, but those well outside the community of faith, those well outside what was considered to be appropriate socially. So he mixes with prostitutes, drunkards, people that would have been outcasts. Jesus is redefining who's in and who's out. And it's not about being Jewish, and it's not about keeping the law, and it's not about these boundary markers of Judaism anymore. It's about allegiance to him. He is reconstituting what it means to be the people of God, and it's him at the center. Eventually, this leads to Jesus' death and resurrection, through which he fulfills all of this. And we're going to look specifically closer to Easter at what the cross actually achieved? What went on? What was God doing in the cross of Christ? And what does this mean for our lives? We could spend hours just on that. But for now, let's simply say Jesus has died and three days later he has been raised from the dead. It's important we keep that in the passive, that it was God who raised Jesus. He didn't just raise himself by his own power. God the Father raised Jesus from the dead as vindication and sign that he was exactly who he said he was. And he is the one who's now been made Lord of all, not just my heart, your heart, someone else's heart, but Lord of all creation in the greatest and fullest sense. And everything's now been placed under Jesus' feet. This then leads us to Act 5, which we're calling New Creation Begins. Act 5 is New Creation Begins, and Act 6 is New Creation Completed. And I deliberately put it that way because I want you to understand these two acts being related to each other that there's a beginning and there's a completion. New creation begins, is about Jesus having ascended back to heaven and then sent to earth, to his followers, still gathered in Jerusalem, still meeting together, sent to earth his Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon them. Acts 2 narrates that day when the believers are gathered together and the Spirit is poured out. And this really is the hallmark of the present, current act that we are in. New creation begins. This is the same act that you and I are living in today. It began with the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, through which Jesus' followers are empowered to carry on the ministry he began, take his word. This is why the church is called the body of Christ. It's not just a metaphor. That's what we are. We are the continuation of what Jesus himself did on planet earth. We are taking the message of the cross, the message of the empty tomb, the message of the kingdom of God that Jesus inaugurated, we are taking that forward. And as we do, we are extending this kingdom of God on earth. Not a political kingdom, not a military kingdom, but a kingdom of love, a kingdom of grace, a kingdom that centers around the crucified and risen Jesus Christ. That's the Jesus that Paul met on the Damascus Road. That's the Jesus that he then served as he went and planted these fledgling little communities of Christian believers across urban centers in the Mediterranean through the first century. That was the beginning of the Jesus movement, the church movement. And the word church has got so much baggage today, it's virtually redundant, but that's what it was. It was the Jesus movement. It was the way. It was those who had been transformed by Christ and then became agents of transforming others and taking the love and the message of Jesus and showing and sharing that with others. And that has continued. It didn't stop when the Bible ceased to be written around AD 90, but it continued in communities, not only through the Mediterranean, but eventually around the world. And we inherit that story today. We are living in Act 5 of the story. 
And we're continuing the Jesus movement that began in the first century. We're standing in the same narrative. Not a separate narrative, but exactly the same story. And the most exciting part is that the story is not yet finished, but it's rushing towards its great climax, which will happen when Jesus returns, which will trigger Act 6, which is new creation completed. So new creation begun means that God's new creation, the kingdom of God, his new reality is already taking shape. But it's not going to take shape fully until Jesus himself bodily, physically reappears at the end of time. We're not going to bring in the kingdom fully by ourselves. It's going to take one last great shake-up of all things. When Jesus returns, and there is the great judgment, and then the new heaven and the new earth are finally here. Not believers being whisked away to, a, to some other ethereal realm where we sit around on clouds with harps and dinner plates behind our head. But right here, I believe, on a, on a transformed and renewed earth. I think this is what God's got in store, is that he's planning to renew humanity, not apart from creation, but along with creation. And again, I, this has made sense for me of these parts in the Bible where Paul and others refer to creation being renewed. And creation itself crying out for its own liberation. I think that the entire world is going to be redeemed. That what God called in the beginning, good, he's not given up on. But he's one day going to restore it. And I think that feeds into Christian responsibility in regard to the earth. Whatever you think about global warming doesn't change the fact that if the earth is valuable to God, it should be valuable to us. Because eventually God's going to redeem it. He doesn't discount physical things. He loves them and he values them. And one day we'll find ourselves, those who love and follow Jesus, in this realm on earth where heaven has come down and new creation's begun and Jesus is the center of it all and God is in the, in the middle of this wonderful community. And those three relationships, if you remember them, right back in the beginning, relationship with God, relationship with each other, relationship with the world will finally be restored and renewed because that's the work of the cross. It was all accomplished on the cross, but it's being outworked now. And the final conclusion is yet to come. So given this incredible drama, this six-act play, what does it do to us to think of ourselves as being not quite in the middle of it maybe, but certainly part of an unfinished story. If we're part of Act 5, what does that mean for how we live? Tom Wright gives this wonderful illustration, keeping on the same theme of a play, a Shakespearean play. He says, imagine if somebody came across a copy of an unfound Shakespearean play that nobody had ever discovered, unpublished, and, and, but this was authentically Shakespeare. And he says, as, as you read through this play, you discover that towards the end, there are a couple of pages of one scene that are missing. Now, because it's never been performed and there's no complete copy that's ever been found, he says, now, imagine that you were then put on stage with this incomplete script and asked to perform this Shakespearean drama. The question is, when you come to the part that's missing... You've had the script up to this point, and you have the script after this as well. You know how it ends. 
The question becomes, what do you do in the gap? What do you do for these pages that are missing? And the term that's given, which I love, is faithful improvisation. And I think that captures the role of the follower of Jesus in the present age. Our lives are about faithful improvisation. That's a term I got from a guy called Kevin Van Hooser. He talks about this concept of a theodrama. And here we are, faithfully improvising. Both those words are important, by the way. Faithful and improvisation. Because true improvising is not ad-libbing. It doesn't mean do whatever you want. It doesn't mean we just live off the cuff. It doesn't mean we just make it up as we go along. True improvisation is faithful to what has come before. This is why it's so important that we know the story. Because we're in it. And we're living it. And we are now actors on the stage moving the story forward. How are you going to do that faithfully unless you know the story to this point and you know what's coming next because we've got to move the story in line with how it's eventually going to end. So our improvisation is bounded in that sense. There are parameters. It's faithful to the story before and after. But it is nonetheless improvisation. This is why we've got to let go of this paradigm of the Bible as a set of rules or just a list of instructions or a set of propositions. The Bible is narrative and it calls for creative improvisation because it doesn't speak to every single situation that you and I are going to encounter. It doesn't simply prescribe behavior. I think the Apostle Paul specifically stopped short of doing that a lot of times and simply said to his congregations, you, you too have the Spirit. You're partakers in the new creation. To use our words, you figure it out. It's, it's imaginative. It means that we need to bring the story into new contexts and new ways and, 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 and find ways of contextualizing the gospel in our current age. That doesn't mean we blur the lines. It doesn't mean we abandon truth. Don't hear me saying that. But it does mean that we respond to situations as they come up and we make the story fresh in 21st century New Zealand through our improvising lives. Faithful improvisation, that's the sense in which the Bible has authority in this church. Not as our list of rules, not as God's love letter, not as a list of promises or principles, but as our governing story. It's our shared narrative. It's the drama that we are situated in that calls us to improvise faithfully as we move the story forward. That for me, and, and part of this is a personal journey for me over the last three years, this has transformed the way that I've come to see the scriptures and see my life within it. And what that makes us as a church, and we end with this, it was John Calvin who said, creation is the theatre of God's glory. He used that metaphor, the theatre of God's glory. And if that's true, then I would suggest that as a local community, what we are doing is putting on an amateur production of the gospel with our lives and with our gatherings and with our works as a church and as individuals. We're amateurs because we're all just trying to figure it out. We're a come-as-you-are church. But nonetheless, we are performing the gospel. Not as hypocrites, not as pretenders, but as authentic participants in the story. We're performing this story for the world to see. And as they see that story performed by this local production company here in Albany, God's prayer and ours is that they're drawn to become participants in the story 
themselves. So this, for me, has become a new way of looking at the Scriptures. And in a couple of weeks' time, when I speak again, we're going to delve in and look at how then to study a particular passage. But this is the macro. This is the big picture level. And I think if we grasp the narrative, grasp the story, we'll find ourselves within it, and it'll make more sense of this incredible book that God has given us. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for the Bible, and we thank you for the genius of the way that you have put it together. Thank you for this incredible drama that's going on all around us that you have been the main actor in from creation and you will continue to be right through to new creation. Thank you that you've called us to be part of the story. You've called us into it. You've written us into the script. And Father, I pray that you would help us to put the script back in scripture, that it would be our story. And you would help us by your grace and in your strength to faithfully improvise in this part of the story we find ourselves in now. I pray that this, Lord, would give us a deeper and a richer picture of your word, a greater love for it, and that we would become this year people of the book, people of your word, people of the great story, and that that would ultimately lead us to you, not to ink on a page, but to you, the writer and the director of this incredible drama. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.